Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Cormac McCarthy. He's written a a lot of books. Uh, A couple have been made movies, No Country for Old Men, The Road. His best book, in my opinion, is called Blood Meridian. And uh, they're not for the faint of heart. They're a little bit dark, but he's just an amazing author. And I was reading an interview of him this week in a magazine that I read from time to time. And the person that was interviewing him asked him, what is it that you're trying to write about? What are what is the story that you're attempting to tell? And McCarthy said, all of my books are really about a single theme. They're about the crisis of human identity, the crisis of human identity. And I found that phrase to be really helpful because there is a crisis of human identity in our world. By that, I mean, we often wonder, what is our purpose? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What story are we a part of? And really, all of the major world religions, all of the different worldviews that we might encounter online or in personal relationships or as we travel around to different parts of the world, in some way or another, are attempting to answer that question. Who is man? What is man? What is our purpose? And Christianity is no exception. Christianity provides, here in Genesis 1, an answer to that question. Who is man? Why do we exist? Genesis 1 is the introduction to Genesis 1 through 11. And Genesis 1 through 11 is the introduction to Genesis. And Genesis is the introduction to the Bible. So if you didn't catch that, this is the introduction to the introduction to the introduction. And it's very foundational. It's very formative content that we find here in Genesis chapter 1 for the Christian faith and for the story of the Bible, and for the story of each one of our lives. And so our big purpose here in this series is to understand the beginning of the story. It's to understand what the Bible tells us about our place and our purpose in the world. And so today we're going to continue by thinking about what man's purpose is. Now last week, we looked at the beginning of creation, and we saw that all things are made by God, and that all things exist for God. And today, we're going to focus more on the creation of mankind, which receives special attention here in the Genesis account. And I want to summarize like this, okay? The pinnacle of creation is mankind, whom God made to reflect him and rule the world under him. And so we're going to take that in two points. First, God made man to reflect him, the image of God. And then second, God made man to rule the world under him. That's what Genesis 1 teaches about our purpose. So let's look then at Genesis 1. First, we see that mankind reflects God. Man is made in the image of God. 
Now, last week we looked at the structure of these six days and we saw that there's a parallelism there. Days one, two, and three are about God making the habitats, the places where the beings of the earth will dwell. He makes the vault and the firmament. He makes the sea. He makes the sky. He makes the land. And then days four, five, and six are about the inhabitants being formed and filling God's world. And there's this repeated pattern in the verses. Let there be X. And then that thing comes into being. And then God blesses it. He says it was good. That's repeated again and again and again on days one, two, three, four, and five. And then we get to day six and we see a break in the pattern. In fact, there are two things in this text that are unique to day six. And what they're showing us is that day six is special. Day six is unique in its importance. The first unique thing we see in verse 26, and it's what some have called the divine consultation. Look in verse 26, God says, let us, that's strange, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish, etc., etc." So God created man in his own image. So there's a plural there, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now there's been a lot of ink spilt about what that means. And I think it's very clearly a reference to the interpersonality of God himself. It's a reference to the Trinity. We've already seen the Spirit of God referred to in verse 2 of chapter 1. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is there as well. All things, according to Colossians 1 and John 1, are made through him. All things were made for him, we read. So it's as if the author is pausing in the story here and placing a special emphasis on what's about to happen. God, as it were, speaks within himself within the fellowship of his own being, about what he's about to make, about the creation of man. And it's important to note that nothing else in all of the universe is said to be made in our image, in the image of God, other than man. So that's a unique factor. God says, let us make man in our image. And then the second unique thing is that the word created is used repeatedly in these verses. All through chapter 1, that verb is only used three times. It's used in verse 1 to the creation of the entire universe. It's used in verse 21 to reference to the creation of, you know, sentient beings. And then it's used in verse 26 and 27. But notice it's used three times alone in verse 27, highlighting the emphasis. It's as if, it's as if God is putting an exclamation point here to indicate that something special is about to happen in the creation of men and women. So given that the creation of mankind gets special attention here in Genesis 1, the question is, what does it mean? What does it mean for mankind to be made in God's image? Here's what it means. It means that God has invested in mankind a godlike glory and capacity to reign over the earth as his representatives. That's what it means to be made in God's image. In the ancient Near Eastern world in which Genesis is written, a very common practice for kings was this. Let's say a king conquers multiple territories and has to rule a really wide domain from his central palace. And because he can't make it to the territories because they're so far away, what they would do is they would set up what was called an icon. 
an icon, a picture or a statue of the king in these far-off distant lands so that when the subjects of the kingdom would walk through the middle of the town square and see the icon, they would think, oh yeah, that guy's in charge. You know, this summer when our team from Christchurch was in Bolivia, what we would often see are billboards all over the place of the president of Bolivia saying, because of my beneficence, I have built this road for you, basically, right? It's a reminder. It's a reminder of who rules the land. Now, in Genesis 1, we see Moses, the author, making use of that idea and saying that human beings, you and me, are God's icon. We're his image. We're the reminder to the universe of the reign and the rule of the king. We're the image that shows that there's a creator who is in charge, and we've been given the task of ruling the world under God's supreme authority. So to be made in God's image means that human beings are uniquely invested with God's likeness. Now, we're not just like God. We're not divine but we're more like God than anything else in the universe. And we're a reminder to ourselves and to the universe that God is the king. So no other creature reflects the character and the nature of God better than men and women. Psalm 8 is a commentary on Genesis 1. And in Psalm 8, we read, David say, you have made him, that's mankind, a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Now, I want to just argue, and I think that you would agree with me, that we all know, whether we're Christians or not, we all know deep down that mankind has a special place in God's world. We might externally, verbally, argue against that, but the way we live is, if, is as if that's true. Just for fun, let's do a quick thought experiment to prove that. Okay, let's say hypothetically that you have a family with, let's say, three children and a dog and two goldfish and a hamster. And let's say that this family faces significant financial windfall, that are, uh, shortcomings. They, they have financial catastrophe and someone in the household's got to go. What is the metric by which the family will measure who leaves the family and who stays in the family? Well, obviously, we would all assume that none of the three children are going to go and that the wife or the husband aren't going to go. One of the other animals is going to go. Listen, they don't measure who goes based on who's the most obedient. You know, my six-year-old, if that were the measure, he's a goner. The dog's probably much more obedient than the children are, and the goldfish, undoubtedly, are more obedient. They don't measure the metric based on who's going to create the most financial windfall. Otherwise, the wife's going to go. <laughs> that wasn't in the notes. Um, <laughs> children, children are going to go. We don't measure it based on how can I save the most money here. We measure it based on what has the most intrinsic value. And so the fish, probably going to get flushed down the toilet. Sorry to say, the dog is going to get sold. And the hamster, for sure, is a goner, right? We don't get rid of people because we all know, deep down, that people are the pinnacle of creation. People are special. We just innately know this because we're made in God's image. Man is unique. 
Man is more godlike than any other part of creation. Man is the pinnacle, the crown jewel. We're distinct from all the other parts of the world. And we all know this. So what is it exactly that makes us unique? Why are we different? We know this deep down. Even if we're not Christians, we would acknowledge that by the way we live. But there are certain things that distinguish humans from everybody else. One is that man has a personality. Now, I know you're going to say, my dog has a personality. Your dog has instincts. Your dog doesn't think about maxing out his 401k. Your dog doesn't long to have deep conversations on the couch with your spouse, I don't think. Any dog that I know of has done that. Although you're like thinking, oh, my dog does. Settle down, dog people. Settle down. Um, Your dog isn't laughing at irony or satire or humor. Your dog doesn't remember how its mom treated it and have its life shaped by that. Now you're thinking, yes, it does. Settle down. I know this is hard for you dog people. Let's just move on. Humans have a personality that's distinct from all other creatures. Second, man has morality. Man knows good and evil. Man has the capacity for holiness, for righteousness, etc. And man has the capacity for evil. That also means that man has greater freedoms and greater responsibility among creatures. So when a lion kills another lion, we don't try to arrest the lion and incarcerate it. The, The younger lion probably had it coming, right? He was encroaching on the big lion's territory. Lions eat lions. We don't view that necessarily as a crime against lions or evil. It's just the way lions are. But if a human kills another human, that's a significant thing. Why? Because humans bear unique dignity, worth, and value. We have morality. Third, man has spirituality. Man is both body and spirit or soul. That means primarily that mankind was made to have a friendship with God who is himself spirit. Man shares a body with other forms of life. All kinds of creatures have bodies, but only man possesses an eternal spirit. So man is intended to be God's unique and valued companion. God loves man as he does not love any other creature. God feels for mankind. God identifies with mankind in Jesus. God grieves for mankind. God sends his spirit to dwell in mankind. Now, we just spent an entire uh, mini-series covering, really, applications of this idea. That's what our justice series was all about. Uh, So go listen through those again if you want to think more about those ideas. But the main application, of course, is that every single person... No matter their age or their ability or their color or their language has intrinsic value and worth and dignity. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, famously says this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. So mankind is made in God's image. Second, Man rules under God, or he has dominion. Verses 28 through 31 tell us that because men and women are made in God's image, they are called by God to rule over the world on God's behalf. So man is God's representative on earth. And our call is to subdue the earth. And that's a consequence of our being made in God's image. God blesses man. Verse 28 And he blesses us with the joyful task and responsibility of exercising rule or dominion over his world, of stewarding his world well. And this passage 
gives us two main ways that man is to exercise dominion. Okay, two main ways. The first is through procreation. Look at what it says in verse 28. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, our church does great at procreation. We've got all kinds of kids. We are subduing the earth and being fruitful and multiplying. So God calls us to fill the earth and to subdue it. And one of the main ways we do that is by having families, by men and women uniting in marriage and bearing children. Now, all that might seem self-explanatory, but I don't want us to overlook just the profundity of that basic idea. Think about that. God grants the mysterious gift of reproduction, of procreation to humans, to men and women. He allows us to bring into the world other beings who were also made in God's image. And that itself, the fact that that's possible, is a reflection of God. You know, God creates the world from nothing. He creates people in his image. And so we also sub-create. We procreate people in God's image, reflecting him. That's an amazing thing. In Genesis 4, Eve is amazed at this. Genesis 4.1, Adam and Eve get together. They have Cain, and Eve says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, the idea there is, whoa, this is amazing. And then very importantly, in Genesis 5, we read about Adam and Eve's son, Seth. And listen to what Moses tells us, Genesis 5.3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Seth, the son of Adam, is called the image of Adam. So our children reflect our image. We all reflect God's image. It's really a remarkable way that God has shaped and made his world. So one way we exercise dominion is by populating the world through having children. Secondly, we exercise dominion by civilization. First, procreation. Second, civilization. We're going to spend more time on this next week. But for now, just look at what the text says. God tells man to subdue the earth and have dominion over everything else. So in other words, we are to form and fill the earth just as God in Genesis 1 forms and fills the earth. But instead of doing it out of nothing, like God did, we do it with the materials, with, with the raw elements of the world, with the gifts that God has given us. Listen to what Al Walters writes. Here's what he says. Mankind, as God's representatives on earth, carry on where God left off. But this is now to be a human development of the earth. The human race will fill the earth with its own kind. And it will form the earth for its own kind. From now on, the development of the created earth will be societal and cultural in nature. In a single word, the task ahead is civilization. Now, theologians have rightly called this idea the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate, the command by God for people to create culture, to advance civilization. That's one of the ways that we exercise the dominion that God calls us to. God calls us to form and make things that are beautiful and productive and helpful to the world. Whether you're a plumber, whether you're an artist, whether you're someone who creates digital content, all of those are ways in which you are making the world a better place. 
literally making it more civilized. Now, we're going to talk more about that idea next week. So, God made the world good. He made mankind, men and women, very good. He made us in his image with knowledge and righteousness and holiness, as our catechism tells us. And he calls us to lovingly and to joyfully fill the earth and rule over it as we commune with him. So God has, God has incredibly good intentions and desires for you and for me and for this world. That's what you need to get from Genesis 1. God made everything beautiful and good. God made us to know him, to have fellowship with him, to be his friends. And he made us to enjoy all that he has made and to enjoy him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But as we saw last week, that is not what our world is like, is it? And that's not what our lives are like. No, we saw last week and we see again today that our world has been infected with that fatal viral strain. And it's been infected with something that was not a part of God's original creation. It's been infected with what the Bible calls sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is our attempting to rule the world, not under God's loving authority, but by trying to steal God's authority. Sin is a complete reversal of the created order in our own hearts. Sin is our believing that we are the center, not God. Sin is believing that all things were made for us and not for God. Sin is believing that we exist first to glorify ourselves and not to glorify God. Sin is believing that this world is ours to exploit and to plunder rather than to tend and care for. And so sin, that fatal viral strain, has wreaked havoc upon God's good world. And that's what we see everywhere, isn't it? We're still God's image, even as sinners, but the viral strain has infected us greatly. Uh, Donald Barnhouse was a preacher some years ago in Philadelphia, and he uses a story or an illustration to make this point. He says, imagine that all of us are like two-story houses in London during World War II. And as the Nazis are bombing London with air raids, your house gets hit with a bomb, and the top story is completely destroyed. The top story is just gone. And the first story still stands, but you can see the cracks forming in the walls. And you can almost feel the foundation shaking. It's obviously severely damaged. And the the debris from the top floor has fallen down. And the weight of the ruined top floor has produced all kinds of strain on the house. That's how it is with us. Our soul is like the top floor and our body is like the bottom floor. At the fall, our souls are completely destroyed. We die in that moment. The soul is dead apart from God. The perfect communion we had with God is destroyed. And our bodies continue to live, but we see the effects of decay and sin in our physical body so that eventually all of us are going to die. That's how significant sin is. It's ruined much of what God made good. Now, practically, listen, practically, that is why you feel far away from God. That's why you feel things like shame and guilt. That's why you continue and why I continue to act and to think just with foolishness. That's why we sometimes hate other people. 
That's why we attempt to subdue others to our will. That's why we abuse created things and struggle with things like addiction. That's why we have problems. It's because of sin. And further, we're still culture makers and we're still called to civilize the world. But instead of caring for God's good world, we exploit it. We mistreat animals. We plunder the earth. We use our ingenuity and our skill and the raw materials of God's world to make things that destroy rather than to make things that bring life. And we use culture, political life, and social life not to further God's intentions for the world, but to hurt and to harm others. You see, the world is so shattered. It's so shattered by sin that Paul in Romans chapter 8 says that the creation itself, the creation itself waits with eager longing for the sons of God to be revealed. Creation itself is subjected to futility. It's in bondage to the corruption of sin. And it groans as if in the pains of childbirth. That's what Paul says about the world. But the story of Genesis and the story of the Bible tells us that God has acted to renew his world. His world that we have decimated. God has acted to renew us fully into his image despite our willful rebellion against him and our conscious hatred of him. God has done that by sending Jesus into our world to redeem it, to recreate all things. Interestingly, that's why the New Testament refers to Jesus repeatedly as the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4 says that the gospel is about the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that through him God has reconciled to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace through his blood of the cross. So Jesus enters into the world as the true and perfect man, as the perfect human being. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God originally intended us to be. And Jesus has acted in his death to save the world and to save man from the consequences of our own sin. And he does this, so to speak, by by taking an injection of the viral strain himself. You see, Jesus is the only one who was never affected by that. He was immunized from sin. He was without sin. But the gospel says that he takes our sin on himself so that our sin can be taken away from us. He became what he was not, that we might become as he is. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, but he was made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus promises to return and make the world whole and perfect again, filled with perfect people who were in perfect obedience and perfect fellowship with God. And God was so resolute in his intention to save the world, to renew the world, that he, he was willing to send Jesus, his son. He sent himself. He entered into the story on his own. He gave us the true image. He loves his image-bearing creation so much that he sends the image. Jesus isn't just like God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the son of God. And he let Jesus, the exact representation of his being, suffer unto death. And be shrouded in darkness so that we, who are much paler reflections of his being, can enter into life and be filled with light. 
I got permission from my oldest to tell you this story. Um, but Nate is almost 10 now, and when he was born, you know, as a first-time dad, that's a powerful moment. If you're a dad, you, you know that and you remember that. And I have these vivid memories of Nate's birth. And uh, one of the things I remember is that when he was born, he looked exactly like me. He had the great privilege and honor of looking like the Evans men. And uh, it was like shocking. And I think one of the first things I said to Marianne was like, granddad is in the room now in the form of that eight-pound baby. I mean, he looked exactly like me, and he looked exactly like my family, my, my father and, and my grandfather. And it's just this profoundly moving moment. You know that if you're a dad that changes you forever. And I know some of you are about to become dads for the first time, and I long for you, and I'm excited for you to experience that moment. And you, you never have a moment where you look at someone that is just like you in so many ways physically and looking back at you. And he, it was just stunning to me. And, and as your dads know, the moment you meet your son is just powerful and profound because you've never before seen someone that bears your marks, that bears your image, right? In the same way. And what is it that you want to do? You don't ever want to let them go. You love them. You cherish them. You're so thankful for them. You weep over their souls. You pray for them. You sacrifice everything so that they might live. There's nothing in the universe that we care more for than our children. And we see the beauty that God has created in them. And we also see their brokenness just like we're broken. The image of me extends into my children, both in its positive and in its negative. And we learn that pretty quickly, right? Like within, what, three or four hours? And it's profound in the moment because you can then begin to understand what it's like for God to give Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. He's the only one. He is God's image. Jesus, or God feels about Jesus the way we feel about our newborn children, but in an infinitely greater way. And God gave him up. He gave him up. He let him go. He put him to death for us. And he got him back in the resurrection so that he could get us back with him. That's the story. Genesis 1 tells us the beginning. And we look at it and we see our world is not like this anymore and I'm not like this anymore. And we look forward with hope to the fact that Jesus has come and that one day he will come again and that he's going to make everything new. That's what Genesis 1 means. It tells us that we are so loved by God as his image bears, that he was willing to sacrifice the perfect image, Jesus, so that we might come home with him again. That's good news. Let's believe it together. Let's pray.